This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 46. Dan. Bashan. Genesaret. A Notable Panorama. Smallness of Palestine. Scraps of History. Character of the Country. Bedouin Shepherds. Glimpses of the Hoary Past. Mr. Grimes' Bedouins. A Battle. Ground of Joshua. That Soldier's Manner of Fighting. Barak's Battle. The Necessity of Unlearning Some Things. Desolation. About an hour's ride over a rough, rocky road, half flooded with water, and through a forest of oaks and bashan, brought us to Dan. From a little mound here in the plain issues a broad stream of limpid water, and forms a large shallow pool, and then rushes furiously onward, augmented in volume. This puddle is an important source of the Jordan. Its banks and those of the brook are respectably adorned with blooming oleanders, but the unutterable beauty of the spot will not throw a well-balanced man into convulsions, as the Syrian books of travel would lead one to suppose. From the spot I am speaking of, a cannon-ball would carry beyond the confines of Holy Land, and light upon profane ground three miles away. We were only one little hour's travel within the borders of Holy Land. We had hardly begun to appreciate yet that we were standing upon any different sort of earth than that we had always been used to, and see how the historic names began already to cluster. Dan, Bashan, Lake Hule, the sources of Jordan, the Sea of Galilee. They were all in sight but the last, and it was not far away. The little township of Bashan was once the kingdom so famous in scriptures for its bulls and its oaks. Lake Hule is the biblical waters of Merom. Dan was the northern, and Beersheba the southern limit of Palestine, hence the expression from Dan to Beersheba. It is equivalent to our phrases, from Maine to Texas, from Baltimore to San Francisco. Our expression, and that of the Israelites, both mean the same, great distance. With their slow camels and asses, it was about a seven days' journey from Dan to Beersheba, say a hundred and fifty or sixty miles. It was the entire length of their country, and was not to be undertaken without great preparation and much ceremony. When the prodigal travelled to a far country, it is not likely that he went more than eighty or ninety miles. Palestine is only from forty to sixty miles wide. The state of Missouri could be split into three Palestines, and there would then be enough material left for part of another, possibly a whole one. From Baltimore to San Francisco is several thousand miles, but it will be only a seven days' journey in the cars when I am two or three years older. The railroad has been completed since the above was written. If I live, I shall necessarily have to go across the continent every now and then in those cars, but one journey from Dan to Beersheba will be sufficient, no doubt. It must be the most trying of the two. Therefore, if we chance to discover that from Dan to Beersheba seemed a mighty stretch of country to the Israelites, let us not be airy with them, but reflect that it was and is a mighty stretch when one cannot traverse it by rail. The small mound I have mentioned a while ago was once occupied by the Phoenician city of Laish. A party of filibusters from Zora and Eshol captured the place, and lived there in a free and easy way, 
worshipping gods of their own manufacture, and stealing idols from their neighbors whenever they wore their own out. Jerobaum set up a golden calf here to fascinate his people and keep them from making dangerous trips to Jerusalem to worship, which might result in a return to their rightful allegiance. With all respect for those ancient Israelites, I cannot overlook the fact that they were not always virtuous enough to withstand the seductions of a golden calf. Human nature has not changed much since then. Some forty centuries ago the city of Sodom was pillaged by the Arab princes of Mesopotamia, and among other prisoners they seized upon the patriarch Lot, and brought him here on their way to their own possessions. They brought him to Dan, and Father Abraham, who was pursuing them, crept softly in at dead of night, among the whispering oleanders and under the shadows of the stately oaks, and fell upon the slumbering victors, and startled them from their dreams with the clash of steel. He captured Lot and all the other plunder. We moved on. We were now in a green valley five or six miles wide and fifteen long. The streams which are called the sources of the Jordan flow through it to Lake Hule, a shallow pond three miles in diameter, and from the southern extremity of the lake the concentrated Jordan flows out. The lake is surrounded by a broad marsh, grown with reeds. Between the marsh and the mountains, which wall the valley, is a respectable strip of fertile land. At the end of the valley, toward Dan, as much as half the land is solid and fertile, and watered by Jordan's sources. There is enough of it to make a farm. It almost warrants the enthusiasm of the spies of that rabble of adventurers who captured Dan. They said, we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good, a place where there is no want of anything that is in the earth. Their enthusiasm was at least warranted by the fact that they had never seen a country as good as this. There was enough of it for the ample support of their six hundred men and their families, too. When we got fairly down on the level part of the Danite farm, we came to places where we could actually run our horses. It was a notable circumstance. We had been painfully clambering over interminable hills and rocks for days together, and when we suddenly came upon this astonishing piece of rockless plain, every man drove the spurs into his horse, and sped away with a velocity he could surely enjoy to the utmost, but could never hope to comprehend in Syria. Here were evidences of cultivation, a rare sight in this country, an acre or two of rich soil studded with last season's dead corn-stalks of the thickness of your thumb and very wide apart. But in such a land it was a thrilling spectacle. Close to it was a stream, and on its banks a great herd of curious-looking Syrian goats and sheep were gratefully eating gravel. I do not state this as a petrified fact. I only suppose they were eating gravel, because there did not appear to be anything else for them to eat. The shepherds that tended them were the very picture of Joseph and his brethren, I have no doubt, in the world. They were tall, muscular, and very dark-skinned Bedouins, with inky black beards. They had firm lips, unquailing eyes, and a kingly stateliness of bearing. They wore the party-colored half-bonnet, half-hood, with fringed ends falling upon their shoulders, and the full flowing robe barbed with broad black stripes the dress one sees in all pictures of the swarthy sons of the desert. These chaps would sell their younger brothers if they had a chance, I think. They have the manners, the customs, the dress, the occupation, and the loose principles of the ancient stock. They attacked our camp last night, and I bear them no good will. 
they had with them the pygmy jackasses one sees all over Syria, and remembers in all pictures of the flight into Egypt, where Mary and the young child are riding, and Joseph is walking alongside, towering high above the little donkey's shoulders. But really, here the man rides and carries the child, as a general thing, and the woman walks. The customs have not changed since Joseph's time. We would not have in our houses a picture representing Joseph riding and Mary walking. We would see profanation in it, but a Syrian Christian would not. I know that hereafter the picture I first spoke of will look odd to me. We could not stop to rest two or three hours out from our camp, of course, albeit the brook was beside us. So we went on an hour longer. We saw water then, but nowhere in all the waste around was there a foot of shade, and we were scorching to death, like unto the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Nothing in the Bible is more beautiful than that, and surely there is no place we have wandered to that is able to give it such touching expression as this blistering, naked, treeless land. Here you do not stop just when you please, but when you can. We found water, but no shade. We travelled on and found a tree at last, but no water. We rested and lunched, and came on to this place, Ain Belaha. The boys call it Baldwinsville. It was a very short day's run, but the dragoman does not want to go further, and has invented a plausible lie about the country beyond this being infested by ferocious Arabs, who would make sleeping in their midst a dangerous pastime. Well, they ought to be dangerous. They carry a rusty old weather-beaten flintlock gun, with a barrel that is longer than themselves. It has no sights on it, it will not carry farther than a brickback, and is not half so certain and the great sash they wear in many a fold around their waists has two or three absurd old horse-pistols in it that are rusty from eternal disuse, weapons that would hang fire just about long enough for you to walk out of range, and then burst and blow the Arab's head off. Exceedingly dangerous these sons of the desert are. It used to make my blood run cold to read William C. Grimes' hairbreadth escapes from Bedouins, but I think I could read them now without a tremor. He never said he was attacked by Bedouins, I believe, or was ever treated uncivilly. But then, in about every other chapter he discovered them approaching, anyhow, and he had a blood-curdling fashion of working up the peril, and of wondering how his relations far away would feel could they see their poor wandering boy with his weary feet and his dim eyes in such fearful danger, and of thinking for the last time of the old homestead and the dear old church and the cow and those things and of finally straightening his form to its utmost height in the saddle, drawing his trusty revolver, and then dashing the spurs into Mohammed, and sweeping down upon the ferocious enemy determined to sell his life as dearly as possible. True, the Bedouins never did anything to him when he arrived, and never had any intention of doing anything to him in the first place, and wondered what in the mischief he was making all that to do about. But still I could not divest myself of the idea, somehow, that a frightful peril had been escaped through that man's daredevil bravery, and so I never could read about William C. Grimes' Bedouins and sleep comfortably afterward. But I believe the Bedouins to be a fraud now. I have seen the monster, and I can outrun him. I shall never be afraid of his daring to stand behind his own gun and discharge it. About five hundred years before Christ, this campground of ours by the waters of Merom was the scene of one of Joshua's exterminating battles. Jabin, king of Hazor, up yonder above Dan, 
called all the sheiks about him together, with their hosts, to make ready for Israel's terrible general who was approaching. And when all these kings were met together, they came and pitched together by the waters of Merom, to fight against Israel. And they went out, they and all their hosts with them, much people, even as the sand that is upon the seashore for multitude, etc. But Joshua fell upon them, and utterly destroyed them, root and branch. That was his usual policy in war. He never left any chance for newspaper controversies about who won the battle. He made this valley, so quiet now, a reeking slaughter-pen. Somewhere in this part of the country, I do not know exactly where, Israel fought another bloody battle a hundred years later. Deborah the prophetess told Barak to take ten thousand men and sally forth against another king of Jabin, who had been doing something. Barak came down from Mount Tabor, twenty or twenty-five miles from here, and gave battle to Jabin's forces, who were in command of Sisera. Barak won the fight, and while he was making the victory complete by the usual method of exterminating the remnant of the defeated host, Sisera fled away on foot, and when he was nearly exhausted by fatigue and thirst, one Jael, a woman he seems to have been acquainted with, invited him to come into her tent and rest himself. The weary soldier acceded readily enough, and Jael put him to bed. He said he was very thirsty, and asked his generous preserver to get him a cup of water. She brought him some milk, and he drank of it gratefully and lay down again, to forget in pleasant dreams his lost battle and his humbled pride. Presently, when he was asleep, she came softly in with a hammer, and drove a hideous tent-pen down through his brain. For he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. Such is the touching language of the Bible. The song of Deborah and Barak praises Jael for the memorable service she had rendered, in an exultant strain. Blessed above women shall Jael, the wife of Hebar the Kenite, be. Blessed shall she be above women in the tent. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought forth butter in a lordly dish. She put her hand to the nail, and her right hand to the workman's hammer. And with the hammer she smote Sisera. She smote off his head when she had pierced and stricken through his temples. At her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay down. At her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell down dead. Stirring scenes like these occur in this valley no more. There is not a solitary village throughout its whole extent, not for thirty miles in either direction. There are two or three small clusters of Bedouin tents, but not a single permanent habitation. One may ride ten miles hereabout, and not see ten human beings. To this region one of the prophecies is applied. I will bring the land into desolation, and your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the heathen, and I will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, and your cities waste. No man can stand here by deserted Ain Melaha and say the prophecy has not been fulfilled. In a verse from the Bible which I have quoted above occurs the phrase, All these kings. It attracted my attention in a moment, because it carries to my mind such a vastly different significance from what it always did at home. I can see easily enough that if I wish to profit by this tour, and come to a correct understanding of the matters of interest connected with it, I must studiously and faithfully unlearn a great many things I have somehow absorbed concerning Palestine. I must begin a system of reduction. 
like my grapes which the spies bore out of the promised land, I have got everything in Palestine on too large a scale. Some of my ideas were wild enough. The word Palestine always brought to my mind a vague suggestion of a country as large as the United States. I do not know why, but such was the case. I suppose it was because I could not conceive of a small country having so large a history. I think I was a little surprised to find that the Grand Sultan of Turkey was a man of only ordinary size. I must try to reduce my ideas of Palestine to a more reasonable shape. One gets large impressions in boyhood sometimes, which he has to fight against all his life. All these kings! When I used to read that in Sunday school, it suggested to me the several kings of such countries as England, France, Spain, Germany, Russia, etc., arrayed in splendid robes ablaze with jewels, marching in grave procession, with sceptres of gold in their hands and flashing crowns upon their heads. But here in Ain Melaha, after coming through Syria, and after giving serious study to the character and customs of the country, the phrase, all these kings, loses its grandeur. It suggests only a parcel of petty chiefs ill-clad and ill-conditioned savages much like our Indians, who lived in full sight of each other, and whose kingdoms were large when they were five miles square and contained two thousand souls. The combined monarchies of the thirty kings destroyed by Joshua on one of his famous campaigns only covered an area about equal to four of our counties of ordinary size. The poor old sheik we saw at Caesarea Philippi, with his ragged band of a hundred followers, would have been called a king in those ancient times. It is seven in the morning, and as we are in the country, the grass ought to be sparkling with dew, the flowers enriching the air with their fragrance, and the birds singing in the trees. But alas, there is no dew here, nor flowers, nor birds, nor trees. There is a plain and an unshaded lake, and beyond them some barren mountains. The tents are tumbling, the Arabs are quarrelling like dogs and cats, as usual, the campground is strewn with packages and bundles. The labor of packing them upon the backs of the mules is progressing with great activity. The horses are saddled, the umbrellas are out, and in ten minutes we shall mount, and the long procession will move again. The white city of Melaha, resurrected for a moment out of the dead centuries, will have disappeared again, and left no sign. End of chapter 46